was great worship this morning. We uh, we heard from home today. That was phenomenal. And uh, thank you for being here. Thank you to our volunteers who worked uh, extremely hard to put that together and just uh, glorify God through their gifts. Um, what a great morning it is to be here with you. Merry Christmas. We are out of Advent. We're into Christmas, the, the 12 days of Christmas that lead up to Epiphany in the church calendar. And this morning we're finishing our 100% Christmas Joy series, and next week we'll start a brand new series uh, that will lead us through a few of the winter months, but we're going to focus now on what comes next after the birth. Now that we've had this time of joy in Christmas, we're going to figure out what comes next in the future. Um. You can tell by looking at me that I am quite the adventurer, that I am quite the explorer. I go on so many adventures in my life. It's really what I live for, just to be outdoors and going through so many countries, exploring the endless wilderness. I want to introduce you to a man named Alexander, and he is a Danish and a few years ago, in fact, in 2012, he completed uh, a solo round-trip expedition to the South Pole. So what he did was he had a backpack of supplies and a sled and a really big giant coat, and he jumped out of an airplane, and he landed on Antarctica. And for 90 days, he went from the edge of Antarctica to the South Pole, and he came back where someone was waiting for him 90 days later to pick him up. Someone did that. They volunteered to do that. He said, I'm going to go and make this happen. So in March of 2012, this video went viral. Everyone was talking about it all over the place, about this, about this guy and his joy that came out of this experience. Um, there's a technique in, um, and I would know this since I'm such an explorer, but there's a technique in a round-trip expedition that you don't carry everything on your back. You bury things as you go so it lightens the load and that when you return, you can pick things up as you go. So like, for example, as he was going to the South Pole, he would bury food and leave it there in the, the snow. And when he came back, it would be perfectly preserved and then he would have food for his return visit. Now, uh, the clip you're about to see is in Danish, okay? So you're not going to understand a lot of it, but you're going to understand it eventually because what happens to him is really remarkable. So I'm going to I'm going to show this and I'm going to explain what's going on as he goes. So he this is day 86 and he's found his cache of food in uh, the the ground here, and he's digging it up, and he's extremely hungry. He does not remember what he has planted here in the ground. And that's sort of what he's explaining to us. And watch what happens when he finds the food that he left here. So, cheese doodles brought him extreme joy in this desert world that he lived in for so long. 
What if we lived with joy like that? What if our joy was so overwhelming that it caused people to look at us like we were a little bit crazy? Like we had been stuck on this desert place for so long that when we finally found what we were looking for, when we finally got through those moments, when we finally became the people that we were supposed to be, our joy just came out of us. Now, see, his expedition here is a lot like our metaphor of what we're talking about today. Because so long, what we go through feels like a desert. It feels like it's so long. I'm so hungry. I thirst so much for Christ, so much for a Messiah, so much for salvation. And it doesn't seem to be there. When is it coming? Where will it be? When will I see it? And yet when it arrives, are we overwhelmed with joy or is it just something that doesn't make any sense to us? The Bible is a collection of books and it's the story of God and everything in it points to one thing. It points to Jesus. It points to the cross. It shows us what is coming next. We read the book as a past, what happened. It's historical. It talks about what's happening in the present to us. But if we forget to read the Bible as a book about the future, then we are missing a huge portion of what the Bible is. We need to read the Bible with this lens of futureness. We need to see that everything in the Bible is pointing toward something greater that is coming We see that very easily in Revelation. We see that very easily in the prophets as our exile comes to an end in Isaiah and Jeremiah. But even in a book like Genesis, when we look at the metaphor that comes out of the six days of creation, where we work for so long for something, but the guarantee of a seventh day of this eternal rest And we know that this points to a future because in the seventh day, Genesis 2 tells us there is no evening. The sun does not set on the seventh day. So all these six days of work builds up to this eternal Sabbath. So we can already see on the first pages of the Bible, the Bible, God's word, pointing us in the direction of a future-minded people. And if we aren't reading the stories with the idea that something is coming in the future that is greater than what we're doing now, we're missing the entire point. This already but not yet idea of the kingdom. Jesus has come here and started the kingdom, but it has not yet seen its way through to completion. In fact, we see it again when the Jewish scholars... And the Greeks got together and they translated the Hebrew Bible into what we now call the Septuagint. The Greek Old Testament used the word ecclesia for the gathering of the people of Israel. And it's the same word that we use for the church in the New Testament. The same word. The gathering of Israel and the people together pointed toward the gathering of the church. The ecclesia, the same in both situations. And in this season of Advent, it's an idea of we are beginning a new year. The liturgical calendar restarts not on January 1st, but on the first Sunday of Advent. 
Because an advent is an anticipation of what comes next. Yes, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, but advent doesn't get us just to look at the birth. The advent gets us to look forward, the coming again of Christ. And so we put it at the beginning to say, what's coming ahead in this frozen desert that lies before us? There will be moments, but the expected journey, we will arrive at it. See, I want Christmas, but I need Advent. I want the promise of the Messiah. I want the promise of the baby. I want all those things to come clear. I want my joy to be complete. But I need Advent to make my joy realized. We're going to look through a section of John, the second half of chapter 16. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the future. And what they're about to go through and what he's about to go through has never happened to them before. They're trying to make sense of this. And in fact, this whole discourse, this whole thing that he's talking about actually starts back in chapter 14. I can't preach on 14, 15, and 16. We don't have that much time. So I'm just going to pick the last half of this where it specifically talks about the joy that is coming to the future. I often feel like when I'm thinking of my future, my joy has been robbed though. I feel like so often in my life that Jesus was maybe disconnected from reality. He's saying, you will see joy, you will have joy, things will be complete. And yet when I look at the future here on earth, I can only see death, destruction, injustice. It just doesn't seem like there's a lot of joy coming from the future. We see presidential elections coming up. We don't see joy in that moment. We see just strife and arguments and division between people and in the church. So what are we talking about? How does Jesus guarantee that there's going to be future, uh, a future of joy? How do we find joy in a future if so much of the future is mired by unknown and uncomfortable things? So Jesus looks at his disciples and he's talking in verse 16. And he says to them, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Now, immediately the disciples get a little bit confused about this, and you should probably get a little bit confused about this too, because we don't know what we're dealing with here. The disciples have never seen this happen before, um, but they have this anxiety about the future. They have this anxiety of looking forward and saying, here's what's coming up. Jesus has talked about, I need to go away for this new thing to happen. In a little while, you won't see me, but then in a little while, you're going to see me again. So what does that mean for their joy in the future? Well, they have this anxiety because they, they are confused about these things that he's saying. But Jesus sees their anxiety. He sees what they're saying. In fact, um, verse 19 says, um, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about all this. They're talking amongst themselves in that moment. What could he possibly mean about in a little while this and a little while that, and I'm going to go to my father and I have to leave. Jesus sees them. In fact, that word sees there, uh, Jesus saw, actually, I don't think that's a great word for that. I think the word there in Greek is no. 
Jesus knew them. Jesus had spent so much time with them that he knew already what they were thinking. And when he told them these things, he could see, he knew that they'd have anxiety. He knew that they would have confusion. Jesus knows what's coming for them, and they just don't have a category to understand a Messiah who would come and teach them, but then would die, and then would raise again, and then go away for good. This isn't what the Messiah was supposed to do. The Messiah that we expected was to come and defeat the forces of evil and reign and sit on the throne and create this kingdom, this this empire. But yet, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying in order for this to work, in order for the future to happen, in order for the joy to be made whole in you again, these things are going to have to happen. And I know that you're confused, but listen, understanding is a promise. Your anxiety is going to become understanding. And notice Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to take your anxiety away. He says, I'm going to transform your anxiety into understanding. I'm going to transform that confusion you have, and it's all going to be revealed. It's all going to be made known to you in a little bit. So just be patient. Just go through this waiting just for a little bit to understand what we have. We can have joy through our anxiety because we have a Savior who knows us. We are known by God. That should bring us joy. That should tell us that in our future, that God has already been there. He's already lived through that portion and knows us. We have a Savior who came to live in our bodies, to live as humans so that he would understand anxiety, so that he would understand pain and anguish and disappointment. We have this Savior who is a human and who has these same things that we do. Jesus doesn't offer to protect us from our suffering, but he offers to make things known to us. In fact, look at what happened after his resurrection. In Luke 24, there are some disciples walking away from Jerusalem where the, where the crucifixion has taken place. Jesus is walking with them and they don't know. They don't see this happening. They don't see Jesus, but yet he is there in front of them. And listen to their bitter disappointment. It says in verse 21, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. You see, they had this preconceived notion about the way things were going to work out for them. Their confusion and their disappointment and their anxieties about the future come because they have a different vision of what the future holds. They have an earthbound vision. They have a vision of the future that includes themselves that says we have the power to do this and our Savior is going to look the way we want him to and God's going to fit in the box that we've created for him and all of these things that are out of our control, we want to put them in our control and therefore we're going to be much happier about the future. But we don't get to control those things. We have joy in our future because Christ is in control of those things. 
Because Jesus looks his disciples in the eye and says, you're going to have trouble, but I'm leaving you my peace. Know that you won't understand this right now, but in a little bit, everything is going to become clear. There's something greater working in the course of human events. And as humans, we also face this anguish, this daily anguish in life, these pains that we go through, suffering, giving into temptations, things that don't go our way. But Jesus uses this great parable. Reading in verse 20, it says, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that the child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take your joy. Again, notice that Jesus does not promise to take our sorrow and anguish away. He does not say, believe in me so you will not have sorrow and anguish. But what he says is when it comes, it will become something different. I'm transforming it into something different. It will become like this joy that you have. There is this great reversal once again. You will mourn. You will mourn. You will weep. You will wail. You will cry. And Jesus is talking firstly, specifically about his crucifixion, about his death, where the disciples will come alongside and see that he is gone, that he has been killed, that this great time is approaching. But he's also speaking to this future part, this future place where we are, where there will be a world that rejoices, a world that looks like it gets away with everything, that looks like they're taking great pleasure in the things that they're doing, that looks like they're having so much fun while we are just suffering and in denial of the things around us. Jesus said there will be a time where the world will rejoice and you will mourn and weep. But as you go through the time of waiting, as you are in that frozen desert place, as we go through those six days of creation, that work that must be done, you are suffering, your anguish will become rejoicing. You will be led out of that place into a place where praise and joy become the normal. This is the great reversal that we have to go through. We will go through pains in this life, but it looks like others are having a great time. And birth pains of this parable are the ones we're going through now. It's the ones that Jesus said must bring about life. Look at what happened in Isaiah 26. Isaiah the prophet is speaking. And this metaphor of birthing pains, of bringing forth a redeemer, of bringing forth a savior is very common in the prophets, in the books of Isaiah, Micah, things like that. This is what Isaiah wrote. 
As when a pregnant woman gets ready to deliver and strains and cries out because of her labor pains, so we are because of you, Lord. We were pregnant, we strained, we gave birth, as it were, not to life, but to wind. We cannot produce deliverance on earth. This great anguish, this great struggle, this great thing that's happening now, what we need to go through, this advent, this time of expectation, this futureness, Jesus said it's all going to be worth it. Because in the past, when we went through these birthing pains, when people tried to do it themselves, they didn't produce anything. They produced a lot of pain and a lot of noise and a lot of emptiness. And that led to heartache. That led to sorrow. That led to anguish. And Jesus says, we have to go through this time right now. We've got to build ourselves up. Because on the other side, I promise you, it will not be in vain. I promise you that you will have great joy because now I'm going to take on the birth pains myself. I'm going to go through the pains of childbirth for you. So that on the other side of all of this, When you see the resurrection, you will see life in a place where there wasn't life before. You will see a new way. You will see a new creation. You will see new things happening. Because you tried to do it before yourself. And you got frustrated time and time and time again. And so it is the way with you, Jesus says. So it is the way with you. As we struggle against time, as we struggle against this earth, as we struggle against our own bodies to maintain control over the world around us, we will struggle and we will fail and we'll produce a lot of emptiness. And what Jesus has left here for us is a place where we can struggle together and succeed. The church is the way that we do that. Jesus says we can do this, and on the other side, we have this hope. And it's not just talk about the resurrection. It's talk about the final days. It's talk about how Jesus came to start this process of the final days. And then, as we are living in the final days, we look forward to the very last day where Jesus comes again. Jesus says, all of this is building. I will die I will come again. We've started a process, though. We've planted the seed in the ground. And when you return, when you see all these things happening on our journey, we will get to where we need to go because you will see me again. Oh, but wait, that's not what he says, is it? Here's the reversal again. Jesus says, I will see you again. Jesus says, I will see you again. It's not up to us. Jesus comes back and he sees us. He knows us. He knows who we are. That's the foundation of our relationship. Not us seeing, but him seeing and knowing us. Now, do we have faith that he can do that? Do we resist that from Jesus? Because that determines how we live. It's the foundation. Human effort cannot take away that joy because Jesus sees us. 
joy then becomes this promise in the future. Joy becomes a place where we can say, yeah, it's rough now, but I know, I have faith that Jesus sees me. I have faith that Jesus knows me. Jesus brings all these things into focus. But he continues on. He comes to this point where in verse 23, he says, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Okay, so what word do you see being repeated there time and time? Ask. And sometimes we have this anxiety about the future. Sometimes we have this uncomfortableness about where things are headed. Sometimes we have this incomplete picture because we don't have all of the information. And so we have to ask, why, God? Why do good things happen to bad people? Why was my father and mother taken too soon? Why did I lose my job in that moment? Why, why, why? It's our life here on earth to struggle in those questions. We don't have this complete knowledge that Jesus has. But Jesus is saying, you don't have to ask anymore. Because you're going to know. The completeness of your faith, the completeness of your joy is going to come from receiving all of these answers. Your joy is going to be made complete in knowing all of the things that I know. Now, we don't know all these things, so what is Jesus talking about? I don't know all the things that that go on. I, I don't have this picture of the universe, so what exactly is Jesus talking about here? Well, it relates to something that he said earlier in John, in chapter 14. He says this, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. That's, confu- that's confusing to us. Because when we read the Bible, we look at Jesus and we say, well, he performed all these great miracles. He was this guy who just was uh, filled with the Spirit. He was half human, half God, or fully God, fully human. What, what's going on? I can't perform these miracles. I can't raise people from the dead. Oh, but if you read through Acts, those were just ordinary men who the Spirit came upon and performed these things. And look at Ezekiel and look at, uh, look at, uh, Elijah and Elisha performing great works, raising people from the dead, even in the Old Testament. These things happened to ordinary humans that were not fully God. Does the church believe that it can do greater things? What does it look like for our joy to become complete? What does it look like for us to live as a church, as a community of believers who believe 
that we can do greater things in the name of the Father. Jesus went away because he was sending us a helper who could interpret all of these things for us. So what does that mean for us? Does that mean we're just supposed to wait for Jesus to come back and fix the situation? Does that mean we're just supposed to watch and pray and say, well, I can't do anything to help? Because what Jesus is telling me is that we've been empowered to do something. That Jesus has left us with this command to say, you can do what I'm doing. And I want you to live the way that I'm living. I want you to live in this way that sacrifices love for other people. That hands things to people who have nothing. That helps support the oppressed. That helps recreate justice in the world. You can do that, Jesus is saying. And yet a lot of times we live like Jesus is still dead. That he's in the grave that he hasn't been resurrected, that there is not new life, that there is not a new thing happening, that we must wait again for him to come, that we are in this desert place just like they were living in the Old Testament in the days leading up to that. But we're not. Jesus says you are living now in a new place. Your joy will be so complete when you receive these things from the Spirit. And it's living in the Spirit through the name of the Father that when you ask of these things to happen, they will happen. I'm not saying we can go out and heal people. I'm not saying that when we ask for a million dollars or a private jet, those things will just be given to us. You can see how someone could take this to a place of prosperity, a place where it makes them seem good. But God's not saying that. God is saying, my will in your life, what I want you to accomplish, what I want you to do is for my glory. Do all these things in the glory of God. You'll never be lost. You'll never be upset because your joy will be made known. People say, I, well, I just don't know what direction God is leading me. I, I just don't know what purpose he has for me in my life. I just don't know what his plan is. I don't know what path he's taking me down. Yeah, you do know what plan he's taking you down. You do know what path he wants you to follow. You just don't want to do it. Because he's calling you to something greater than yourself. He's saying, whatever you do, glorify me through it. All of these things have been received. All of these things have been done. You no longer have to wait for me to do them. You can do them. The church can do them. We can do them together because Jesus has sent a spirit to make us full. But Jesus promises one more thing that will happen, that will make us look in fear of the future, this moment of abandonment. He says in verse 31, do you now believe, Jesus is being a little bit sarcastic there because he told them you're not actually going to believe until the time comes. He says the time is coming and in fact has come now when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone for my father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble but take heart, I have overcome the world. We are going to fail. 
The shepherd will be struck. The sheep will be scattered, just as it was prophesied. We will fail. We will become miserable. We will get frustrated and angry at ourselves. And we will feel like God has abandoned us. Because we won't remember the promises that somewhere in the middle of that frozen desert, somewhere in the middle of that round trip journey, where we're running out of food, we're running out of supplies, we're running out of resources, we're running out of hope and joy, we'll feel like God is so far away. You will abandon me, he says. You will go to your homes, you will leave me alone. And in fact, Jesus said the same thing. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? But the truth is, he didn't abandon him. But in our perspective, in our world, from our point of view, God seems so far. Especially in these struggles. When the steps become too unbearable when our anxieties and our anguish and our asking just becomes too great and too overwhelming. It's like God has forgotten his people. But no matter what the situation looks like, the reality is much different. Take heart, I have overcome the world. This verb here, overcome, is so small for what it means. It actually means I defeat the world. And in fact, not just a situation, but it's meant to give the idea that there is a superior way. Not only have I overcome the world, not only have I defeated the world, but this is the superior way of doing things. This is the better way to do things. It's meant to instill a sense of confidence that Christ has come, and even though it looks like God has abandoned us, there is not abandonment, but there is abundance. There is this moment that Christ says, this is the better way to do things. It might feel like you're all alone, it might feel like you're going through this, but get to the other side and you will see all the joy and all the peace and all of the things that I have defeated. This is the victory. Christ's victory over death means that all of the opposing forces of this world will not succeed. Jesus says this in essence, have confidence because I am greater than all things. Paul recognized this in Romans 8.37. He says, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That word conquerors is the same word that Jesus says in overcome. It's the same Greek word. And he's come to do more than overcome the world. He's come to show that he is the superior way. He's shown that opposition is pointless. And the resurrection proves this. This is our hope for the future. This is our joy that is made complete. Because the resurrection, we're living in a time where the resurrection is true. We're living in a place 
Oh, we have this power over the forces that would come to say, I want to take your joy. I want to take the things that keep you from God, your struggles. I want you to believe that those things are real, that that's the only way. And Jesus says, no, I can overcome the grave and you can do it too. I've turned away the forces of this world and you can do it too. Finding joy in the future is about finding confidence. And confidence won't come from ourselves. Confidence comes from Christ. Confidence comes that we know that he sees us, that he knows us, that he is who he says he is. If we have that in our storehouse, if we have that in our treasury, if we have that in our heart, everything flows from that. We have joy because we reinterpret everything in light of the cross. We reinterpret everything in light of the resurrection because we see our present struggles and we have joy because we have this idea of confidence from Christ in our hearts. 